Welcome to My Ed Expert, specializing in what's possible in education. By merging research, practice, and passion, we provide insights from top educational thought leaders for right now implementation. Now, here's your host, author Susie Pepper Rollins. So glad you joined us today. Here's our topic What is wrong with these kids? Why are they always on their devices? The students we are teaching today are so unique in that they have grown up with instant access to information. They are seemingly wired 24-7 playing games while texting, while listening to music, while searching for a video. This certainly brings challenges into the classroom. No kidding, right? But maybe some opportunities with that. We have a fabulous expert today who's going to help us navigate these waters. His name is Ryan Schaff. Let me tell you three things about Ryan. He was a teacher and instructional leader. He was even nominated for Maryland Teacher of the Year. That is pretty cool. He's authored or co-authored quite a few books on gaming, classroom technology. Uh, Here are a couple of them, Reinventing Learning for the Always-On Generation, that solution tree. Digital Games in the Classroom, that's a Corwin book. He has a new book out. Digital Games to Transform Teaching. That's that's something I'm going to have to check out. He's a professor. He's a presenter. He's just an all-around great guy. So first, Ryan, glad you're here. Tell us a little bit about where this passion for instructional technology, uh, digital gaming, uh, where would that come from with you? Um, Well, I was a teacher for many years uh, in Maryland. Um, I started off as a third-grade teacher. I taught in third grade for about eight years. Uh, and then I just all of a sudden, I just loved working with uh, technology with my students. I loved it when they were able to use it and tinker it and use it for research. Um, and I just saw how much they were drawn to it. And I just discovered how much I was drawn to them being drawn to it. Um, from there, I, um, I took a position as a technology teacher in which I taught K through five students, kind of like a related arts or, a, um, uh, you know, almost like a, if you have music, if you have art, uh, it would be like a technology class completely integrated into their curriculums. Um, and from there, I loved it so much so that I, uh, I ended up teaching in the same master's program um, I graduated from at Johns Hopkins, um, fell in love with teaching teachers. Um, and from there, so that's my passion is just, I love how students, um, use digital devices, digital technologies to teach themselves and completely transform the role of teachers in the classroom. Well, that's super interesting. Now I'm going to start with a tough question here. Um, texting, video, Snapchat, all the things kids are doing. It's almost like, seems like nonstop digital interaction has that actually changed the learning makeup of our students or does it just seem that way when we look at them? Um, it absolutely has. Um, there's a, there's a phenomenon called chronic digital bombardment in which all of these devices, all of this information, um, all of the data that, uh, students that we uh, come upon each day, it, constantly wires and rewires our brains. Um, We've heard of the uh, phenomenon neuroplasticity where our brains are able to um, almost reorganize itself due to the stimuli that we uh, encounter every day. Um, And this type of bombardment has obviously fundamentally changed um, our students and their brains uh, to where they are almost always on. And I'm not stating that uh, there's no such thing as digital addiction. I'm not stating that it's always good to be always on. Uh, these students seriously have to find a balance between the digital and non-digital experiences. 
Um, but it has definitely changed, and teachers are absolutely able to, I want to say, take advantage of the tools that their kids use um, to learn using those very tools that they prefer to use. Um, the paper and pen to them is uh, is almost like the caveman uh, and discovering the wheel. It's it's just they've had these types of inventions uh, that changes their lives. It's almost it's disrupted uh, our entire culture. Now, one of the things I've noticed with students today is they seem they perceive themselves as really great multitaskers, or through my eyes, I don't know, but they, they talk about multitasking. Are they better at multi, multitasking than, than prior generations? Is there any evidence of that? Or what do you see on that in the research? It depends what type of tasks they're doing. When it comes to, you know, if you ever walk into the room and you see a kid that's on their laptop with it seems like four windows open, simultaneously listening to music, um, reading a web page, watching a video, uh, has a book open, says they're doing their homework, and they still seem like they're not stimulated enough. Um, they are multitasking in a way that is uh, not using tasks that aren't very cognitively demanding. Um, it's, comp- it's kind of similar, you know, thinking about analogy of when we drive our cars, when we drive our cars, uh, we do a lot of things at once. We'll, we'll tune the radio, we'll read a billboard, we'll talk to the people that are sitting next to us. Um, not very cognitively demanding. However, when they're trying to do multiple things that really are cognitively demanding, they can't do it. Um, you could read uh, authors such as uh, Dr. Gary Smalls and uh, Dr. John Medina. Uh, they've done a lot of research on how multitasking is just really a myth. Um, in fact, I think it was um, Dr. Smalls or it may have been Dr. Medina who actually stated that trying to multitask cognitively demanding jobs is almost like trying to do things while um, having a few stiff drinks. You might think you're being really productive, but actually you're not. You're slower and making a lot more mistakes. So my suggestions to the um, always-on generation is if they're doing something cognitively demanding, try and single task to see it all the way through. That's where I was going to go with teachers is, so if we're, if we're giving a, sort of some guidance to teachers, because that's, a, that's a question we come up with a lot is, do we let them keep their headsets in? Do we let them keep their phones out while they're working on this? And, and, you know, we, we want to, so what, what kind of guidelines would you give to teachers? Kind of like that, like if there's certain kinds, sometimes we can, sometimes we can't, or we shouldn't. What do you think on that? We have to teach them how to use their devices in a positive manner. Uh, again, a good analogy is when it comes to teaching our youngsters how to drive. We don't just give them the keys and ask them to get in their car and drive away. We have to teach them how to drive, how to obey the laws, um, how to be respectful while driving, how to drive defensively, how to, how to be assertive. Uh, we have to teach them this type of behavior. It's just like when you give them a digital device. You're giving them something extremely powerful that could be used for good or it could be used for bad. I love that. Uh, I love that analogy. And that's uh, one of the things that that's, we're hearing so much about is 
this instant gratification that sometimes comes with social media where we're, we're just living for a like or a new profile pic or someone didn't comment on my picture or all those kinds of things. Is that an issue? Are they, you know, where they're, 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 uh, we're just building kids who need that instant gratification. Can you talk a little bit about that? Are you worried about that? Oh, absolutely. Um, it does concern me, especially with reading, uh, where students will sometimes, you know, they'll have two different types of reading behaviors. Uh, when reading something, they'll skim and scour um, a book sometimes because they're so used to it. They've, they've developed that tendency as they uh, uh, surf the web. Um, however, some of them, it's a concern that some of them um, aren't taking the time to actually process and read a book and, and think deeply about these um, certain scenarios and situations that come up in a book. Um, however, when it comes to instant gratification, I find that we not only are feeding that type of instant gratification monster, but it also is leading to deferred gratification and delayed rewards as well. And I'll give you an example. So let's take, for instance, you put a picture up on Instagram or you share a blog post or something along the lines of that. Um, and you're getting those likes and you're getting those retweets and you're getting the compliments and all of that stuff. And that's that instant gratification. However, in the background, if it's somebody who's taking a picture online, like say for, for instance on Instagram, it's usually not the very first picture that they share. It's the photographer that's taking the time to actually find the best picture and best angle. Um, so, and again, that's kind of leading to the delayed gratification where they're actually seeing rewards later on um, for their hard work now. Or for instance, a blog post. Um, in the background, their writing is getting improving because they're practicing their writing. Um, they're also commenting and they're also um, experiencing the internet in a positive way with, with positive discourse and, and stuff like that. So you're seeing also these delayed rewards as well. Um, so it's not just about the, the you know, the, the shiny new button or the cool sound or the new badge or the new high score. To them, it is important. However, it is in the background, potentially, um, helping them to cultivate new skills. Well, that's an interesting perspective. So, you know, there might be obviously some good opportunities for that. And that's something I hadn't considered. One of the things when I was reading uh, some of the things you've written that really resonated with me because I'm, I'm really big on, you know, student ownership of work and more control in the classroom. And this was really, um, amazing when I read that since they're on their devices on out of school time so much. That gives kids a lot of control. They can pick how they want to read, what they want to read, which videos the best, kind of vet materials. They're making all these decisions, so they have a lot of autonomy. And then when they walk into a classroom, maybe maybe that changes. And 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 so I, I thought, wow, that kind of made me think a lot. So can you talk a little bit about that? What can we learn from that as teachers? I think we have to actually take a look at this question, not only as teachers, but also as uh, parents. Uh, I'm a parent of two little boys growing up in the digital, um, in, in this, you know, big digital world. Um, and I come at it in two different ways. Number one, as the teacher, I'm trying to craft instructional activities um, that are going to help my students bring the real world into the classroom. And to bring that real world, a wonderful window, a wonderful gateway is digital technology. Um, not always, 
Um, educators have to find what is the relative advantage of using a specific digital tool. If there's no relative advantage to using the tool, then they shouldn't use it. They should just stick to the tool that works best for the job. Um, it's like um, if there's a nail in the wall, you know, am I going to use a hammer? Or am I going to use a, um, a sledgehammer? Uh, you have to figure out what is the best tool for that job and that task. Um, but nowadays, our students are able to use these tools to make connections uh, that go way beyond the brick-and-mortar classroom. Um, they're able to do projects that are able to seamlessly mix in content that they learn in schools into service projects or altruistic um, uh, endeavors. Um, they can also do other types of experiences that isn't found in that textbook that might be 10, 15, or 20 years old. And uh, continuing with that, with our, our with our sort of what you call always-on generation, some strategies for instruction. Uh, and, and, you know, we have, we have lots of different educators listening in different content areas. So maybe some broad strategies you've kind of touched on. And what could you offer in terms of that for, like, next-day implementation? Uh, anytime that they can use images is always a plus. Uh, we process uh, the ideas and the insights that we look at pictures faster than we do text. Um, I've heard estimates as high as 60,000 times faster. Um, so we are able to process that type of information faster than we can process text. Um, inherently, we're all visual learners. Um, so any t- any way that you can add visual elements uh, to instruction, and this goes beyond, this is not just content specific, this is not just elementary school or high school or college, it, it really, it fundamentally is for everybody. Adding visuals really helps to make the content stick in the brain. Um, that's one of the really, that, that's a really big one that teachers can do pretty much the next day, any way they can find visual um elements. Uh, Another idea uh, that's, I think, helpful is, um, as I mentioned before, doing the multitasking. Um, You know, I mentioned cognitively demanding tasks where students have to do too many things at once. Try to get them to single task for longer periods of time. Now, that doesn't mean that research is multitasking going from one place to the other. They need to see a process as which they go from research to whatever they produce from the research and on. They see it in stages, and they're able to do that. And they can learn that type of process easily uh, and then transfer it to other situations. A third and final one is um, what I like to say is probably one of the easiest, most transferable one, is changing um, how uh, educators try to get learners to express themselves. Um, very often, um, and I know I was guilty of this, uh, is that we are, might exist in a worksheet culture. It's easy just to find a resource and plug the student in. The problem is it's just it, there's no creativity in that. They're not able to express themselves. They're basically just going through the emotions and trying to basically game school. <laughs> they're prob- they're just getting through it. And the problem is there's nothing practical about that. There's nothing transferable. There's nothing real world. Okay. When I go into uh, my job, I'm not going to be completing worksheets for the rest of my life. 
the best thing I can tell students or educators to do for their students is trying to come up with other ways in which students can express themselves. Uh, instead of writing a long paragraph, they can absolutely create some sort of podcast or they can act it out in a skit. There's hundreds and hundreds of ways that our students can express themselves and teachers can still assess that they've learned something. Um, so try and diversify those types of experiences in educator. It's probably one of the most powerful and easy ways to use it in the classroom. Okay. And that reminds me of, I'll have to tell a little story here. I was, uh, there's someone here, I, I live in Athens, Georgia, and there was a law student. She still has on her phone an assignment they did when she was in high school where they were studying Hamlet and they made videos on their phones with their fingers, finger puppets, and they acted it out and she was still playing it. And I thought, what a treasure that is. That, and that was the way they summarized Hamlet with these little finger puppets on their, on their cell phones. I just got such a kick out of that. Whoever that teacher was, that was a great idea. One thing I want you to talk about, it was so fascinating to me in your work, is how their reading is changing, the way kids read uh, from uh, this use of technology. Could you share a little bit with that? Oh, absolutely. Um, As we know, they're spending more and more times um, uh, reading online, and it's really a lot about graphical design and exactly how information is displayed on uh, the page. Uh, nowadays, now that they skim and scour so much, they don't really read the same way that we used to from, from left to right down the page and almost what you call a zigzag type of pattern. Now they're reading more in an F pattern where they basically will look at the negative space on the page. We'll start at the very top and they'll go all the way across the page, but then they'll go back from right to left, they'll go back to the beginning again and work their eyes back down. And about halfway through the page, they'll start to go forward a little bit more, almost in what's called this F or fast pattern. So they're actually not, they're skimming through this content. And then they'll come back to the beginning of the page on the left-hand side, and they'll go back down, but they won't go back across. So their eye type of, and this is actually proven through uh, heat scans. Uh, I think the place that originally did the research was Kent State. They make this F pattern, this fast pattern, where we, the older generation, the traditional readers, would do a zigzag pattern where we you know, go across the page, then back to the beginning, and then go across the page again and back to the beginning, reading almost like, you know, and how we ingest our content uh, from a book. However, the digital generations are actually doing more of this F or fast pattern reading. And now there's actually even more research stating that there, the F is actually shrinking to more. Now it's more of like an I on the left-hand side. So if you really want to get these digital readers to read more, try to put something on the bottom right-hand side of the page that will force their eyes to go there, like an image or a video or something to where it actually makes them go to it. Also, try to put less words on the page. Um, if you're doing a page of like hundreds and hundreds of words, they're probably going to only read about 30 or 40% of it because they're used to that skim and scour. Um, so again, it's, you know, and, and this isn't trying to get away from how they read books. Uh, obviously you have to teach them just reading behaviors, but they have to understand there's almost two types of reading now, both digital and non-digital and people read differently in both types of, um, uh, mediums. 
That is so fascinating. And I don't know if you want to opine on this because there's there's so much out there, but I would sure be interested in your opinion on this. How much is too much screen time? Because they're on their devices after school, at night, on the weekends. We're using a lot more technology in the classroom. Are there any guidelines that you could share with, with schools on that? Absolutely. I mean, the obviously you're going to see the ones that they recommend online, which is uh, just about like one hour a day, no more, no less. I'm sorry, no more than an hour. Um, however, my personal feeling, my philosophy with my two sons, and what I suggest to educators that also ask me this and argue with me about it, is I suggest a balance. You have to have a balance of both digital and non-digital tools. If they're going to be on it a little bit longer because they're doing something productive, they're doing something besides, um, and I'm, and again, I'm one of my names is the video game professor where they're not just mindlessly blowing up uh, creatures. What you wanted to do is creating something or researching something, um, doing something productive, not just the social aspects, not just them, you know, skimming and scanning and just looking for something that's might not be out there. Um, Trying to get them to be constructive with their um, digital time, Um, have them really ingest uh, you know, educational content. It's not, doesn't just have to be stuff that's just educational based, but stuff that's, you know, it, that you're screening and you would almost trust if you turn around, you're not going to, they're not going to be reading or, or listening to something that's inappropriate or maybe it's just a waste of their time and just uh, immature, you know, immature type of uh, content that might be out there. So try to diversify those types of experiences and know as parents and as teachers, when it's time to put the devices away and do something else non-digital. Um, that's, you know, it's a big problem is that kids don't even go outside anymore um, as much as they used to. And and that's absolutely that's absolutely vital to help with their imaginations. Um, so they can't just have their imaginations somehow artificially created by, um, you know, the digital landscape. They have to develop that. And the way to do that is to find balance. Great. Now, before I forget, Ryan has some great open downloads on Myad Expert. You you just go to Myad Expert. He's actually on the home page right there. Um, but if he disappears from the home, you just type in Ryan's name and his last name is spelled S C H A A F. I got a couple great open downloads you can grab. How can people contact you? What's your Twitter? Um, it's at uh, Ryan. So it's capital R Y A N, capital L. Capital S C H A A F. All right, great. And we'll put that on the website when the, when the, with the podcast as well. So, guess what we're going to do now? Since you're a gaming expert, we're going to play a little game. It's not digital, it's old school. It's called Fact and Fib. So, you, everybody's listening. You can play along with us. Let's, uh, let's see how you do. So, uh, what I'm going to ask you to do, Ryan, I'm going to read a statement. You tell me if it's a fact or fib, and you maybe want to add a little bit of information with us. Number one, you ready to play? Absolutely. Okay, here we go. Our learners' brains have actually changed um, because of their digital lifestyles. Fact or fib? Fact. All right, I got that one right. Okay, number two. Instant access to information can actually free up higher-order thinking. Fact. That's pretty cool, I think. I like that one. All right, the always-on generation is just as social as older generation. It just looks different. 
Absolutely fact. All righty. And the digital generation relies more on pictures than text. I think we can all agree that's a it's a fact. fact. Yep. All right. Now, here's the big one. The quest for immediate gratification is not different now than it was in the 50s. <laughs> I think that's an absolute fib. <laughs> that's a fib. Okay. All right. So I've been taking some copious notes because this was so interesting. Some of my takeaways um, is I love your analogy on teaching uh, students about, you know, effective use of their technology is really a lot like teaching driving. Uh, we want to have them be really good users of technology to incorporate a lot of images in our classroom to help students find different ways to express themselves. I thought it was particularly insta- uh, interesting about the immediate gratification because that gives me some hope that, hey, that may that may be leading to some long-term kinds of things there. Um, and, oh, and the reading thing. I am so, fa- I'm going to do some more reading on that. I just find that fascinating that the students are getting wired differently in terms of their reading. So thank you, Ryan, for joining us. This has been so awesome. To every educator out there, we want to thank you for creating possibilities for your students every single day, for opening doors for your kids every single day. And we hope you join us next time for conversations with some of our most compelling authors. Thank you so much for having me. We are so glad you joined us on this episode of My Ed Expert. For more resources on the ever-evolving realm of education, head on over to myedexpert.com and get inspired by all of our authors' work through downloads, strategies, and best practices. While you're there, hop on to get updates right to your inbox because you don't want to miss a thing right here on My Ed Expert.